Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're looking this morning at just two verses, Hebrews 11, 30, and 31. If you're using the church Bible, you're going to find that on page 1008. That is Hebrews 11, verses 30 and 31 on page 1008. And before we do hear God's word preached, let's again go to him in prayer and let's prepare our hearts to receive his word this morning. Let's humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need the preaching of your word, and we desperately need the working of your Holy Spirit. We need the power and the wisdom that comes from the preaching of Christ crucified. We pray that you would help both the one that preaches and those that hear. We pray that you would give us understanding and wisdom. We pray that you would give us a clear sight of Christ. We pray that you would increase our faith, that we might hold him fast, and that we might love him dearly and that we might follow him closely. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak for your servants are listening. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Well, one of my favorite stories in church history is the uh, accounts, the early accounts dealing, having to do with Martin Luther and the early days of the Reformation, that great uh, world changing, that great event that turned the world upside down. Martin Luther in 1517 had nailed the 95 Theses to the, the door there at the church in Wittenberg and, and had set in motion something that we are actually realizing as you sit in a Reformed Presbyterian church today, something that to this day is still impacting the world that Luther had, in a sense, called the church back to the scriptures, back to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Luther had done many amazing things. He had given the German people uh, a Bible in their own language, which was a rare, almost um, non-existent thing in those days. He had unified the German language. Luther produced more than most men ever will produce in their life. And yet, five years after nailing the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg, Martin Luther walked up the steps to the old pulpit at the church in which he had preached when the Reformation began. And having had so many people ask him, how did you do it? How did you turn the world upside down, Martin Luther? And as Luther looked out at the people whose lives had been changed by the gospel, and yet now there was an imminent threat, there was a peasant's rebellion, and there was an attempt at some of the Christians in Germany to want to rise up in military battle against um, some of the German princes and against the Roman Catholic Church itself. This is what Luther said to the people five years after he had nailed his theses to the door in Wittenberg. He says, I will preach... Speak, write, but I will force no one. For faith must be voluntary. Take me as an example. I stood up against the Pope, indulgences, and all papists, but without violence or uproar. I only urged, preached, and declared God's word, nothing else. And yet while I was asleep or drinking Wittenberg beer with Philip Melanchthon and Amsdorf, The word inflicted greater injury on popery than prince or emperor ever did. I did nothing. The word did everything. 
That's what Martin Luther said, turn the world upside down. I slept, I drank beer in Wittenberg, I preached, I did nothing, the word did everything. Now I think that's helpful as a church history illustration because when we come to the passage we have in front of us today, what we see is that Israel is called into their first major battle in the conquest of Israel. And they come to the brink of the land that God had promised so many hundred years before and they come to that point of taking it. They've already had people tell them we can't take the land. There's giants in there. The walls are fortified. How can we do it? And God tells them what he wants them to do and they go in by faith and essentially... Essentially, the Israelites would have had to say when the walls fell down, we slept, we believed God's word, we blew on some ram horns, we marched around the city, the walls fell down, we did nothing, God did everything. That's the point of the Jericho account. We did nothing, God did everything. We'll notice that there's these two accounts there in verse 30 and 31. And what's interesting, what you might miss if you didn't take time to meditate on this, that we've been going through redemptive history. We've gone from Abel to Enoch to Noah to Abraham, Isaac to Jacob to Moses to the children of Israel coming out of the Red Sea. And now we're coming to the point of the conquest. We've had the Exodus. We've seen how by faith they came through. They kept the Passover. They passed through the sea. The Egyptians were drowned. And if we were taking our time to meditate, we would have to say there's something missing. There's something missing. Why does the writer of Hebrews go from the crossing of the Red Sea in verse 29 to the entrance of the promised land in verse 30? He's just skipped over 40 years of redemptive history. That is the wilderness wandering. I think the answer is found in chapters 3 and 4 of this book. Where in chapters 3 and 4 of this book, Israel in the wilderness is set out as the example of unbelief and disobedience. That that 40 years of wandering is set out as the premier example of unbelief where the writer says, Do not harden your hearts in rebellion. We who believe do enter his rest. And so the writer strategically leaves out the wilderness wandering out in between verse 29 and 30. And now he moves in verse 30 to tell us about that first great account where Israel is going into the conquest of the land. And he says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, on the surface, it doesn't seem all that remarkable. And on the surface, it doesn't seem to fit in with everything that the writer has said about the gospel and about not departing from the crucified Son of God throughout the whole book of Hebrews. Remember, that's the background. The background is, don't move away from the sacrifice of Jesus. We see Jesus. We see him through the sufferings of death, crowned with glory and honor. Do not take your eyes off Jesus. And now, he says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Well, I think if we go back to Joshua 6, we understand more clearly what the writer is seeing and thinking. God had, as I said, sent spies into the land. Numbers chapter 13 and Deuteronomy 1 were told that the spies came back and they said, we can't take the land. They were unbelieving. They didn't believe God's word. They didn't believe that the Lord had said, I'm going to give you this land. They said, the men are too big. They're too mighty. Their cities are too fortified. We cannot take this land. And God said, okay, then you'll dwell in the land of the wilderness for more years, you won't go into the land. The next generation will go in. And now we come to that next generation. And here's what we have to keep in mind this morning. The account 
of Jericho and God giving the city over to Israel as they enter the land, as the first fruits of their taking possession of the land, is attended with all kinds of obstacles. Israel has everything against them. They have the spies in their history coming back and telling them we can't do it. So they have the example of unbelief from some of their greatest warriors. They have that lingering. And then they have the knowledge that the city is fortified and the city is um, impenetrable, as it were, that there's no way they're going to get into that city. They don't have the weapons. They don't have the resources. They don't have an army. They are a people coming out of the wilderness. There are people coming out of the wilderness into the land that God has promised them, and they have everything against them. Then, on top of that, God says, here's how you're going to take it. You're not going to go in with a chariot. You're not going to go in with a battering ram. You're not going to go in with silver trumpets, and you're not going to go in with a bunch of warriors to take this. What you're going to do is you're going to go in. You're going to go in marching around the city one time for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day, And you're going to take with you not trumpets made out of silver, war trumpets. You're going to take a a weak little bass ram's horn. And then you're going to send your priest out in front of you, the priests, not the warriors. Priests were not warriors. Priests were pastors. Most pastors are not doodly dudes. These were priests. The priests were going out. You're going to send the priests in front of you, and they're going to carry a golden box. You're going to carry a golden box, and you're going to march around the city. And, oh, by the way, while you're marching around the city, the the inhabitants of the city are probably going to be laughing at you. All likelihood, the residents of Jericho were like, what in the world are these people doing? They had everything against them. They had everything against them. And the writer says, notice verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, I think what we see here is that, first of all, the strength of what's happening is God is sending his people together corporately. Now, don't miss this. Up till this point, almost every example we've seen is of individuals, individual faith. The last time, the last verse, verse 29, we're told that by faith they, the Israelites, passed through the sea. Here we're told by faith they, marching around the city, saw the walls of Jericho fall down. And so God is working collectively in the faith of his people. It doesn't mean everybody that was with them had faith, but at least a large number of them said, God has said this, we will do this. Faith is courageous. You know, I think if there's one thing I realize as I get older is how rare it is to find people of courage. Not people of blatant um, putting themselves out there in hot-headedness, but people of courage, People who are willing to stand up against enemies and opposition, against the tide of opinion, against the court of public opinion. And what I think you see here is that these people collectively have faith in that God has made them a people of courage, a people that are willing to go into enemy-occupied territory. Now, that's important to you because the writer of Hebrews is saying that you are in enemy-occupied territory every day of your life. Now, the writer is writing to a people who really have two fears. One is that they are a small little band. You've got to remember, first century, there's not a lot of Christians. 
We haven't had the great Christian nations. We haven't had Constantinople. We haven't had Geneva. We haven't had the Netherlands under Abraham Kuyper. We haven't had America and the Puritans. We haven't had Puritan England. We haven't had those, those resurgences and those spots in which Christianity was taking root in some more substantial way. You have a few little band of Christians scattered here and there throughout the world, God fulfilling his promises. And one of the things that the Hebrews to which the writer is writing his concern is that they feel outnumbered. They need to be reminded that God is with them. They need to be reminded he will never leave you nor forsake you. They need to be reminded that the battle is the Lord's. They need to be reminded of what Martin Luther said, I did nothing, the word did everything. They need to be reminded that it's not anything that we do. It's not resources. It's not scheming. It's not the number of people we have. In fact, the Bible everywhere tells us the less we have, the more glory God gets when he gives the victory. And so God gave them faith. He collectively gave them faith. I think that shows the importance of the church, that the church is the, the bed in which faith is fostered. It's the garden in which faith grows. Now, the writer will say this to the Hebrews in chapter 10. He'll say, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. What if, what if all the Israelites had decided to go to church every fourth Sunday and this fell on one of the other Sundays. They would not have had the conquest of Jericho. They would not have seen the victory. It's a collective faith. It's an assembly coming together, believing God's promises, obeying God, believing that God wants them together to see his victory. And God gave them faith. I want to read to you a quote that I thought was so wonderful. John Calvin basically says in his commentary on Joshua, that when God is about to do something great, he prepares his people by filling them with faith so that by faith they may see the victory that he himself provides. That when God is about to do something great, he fills his people with faith so that they, by faith, will be able to see and experience the victory that he himself provides. That's exactly what Jericho is about. And so they go in, they go in despised, they go in scorned, they go in with everything against them, but they go in courageous, and they go in willing to yield to God's will, to what God has said are the means God's going to use for their victory. And I think, you know, I think this has massive implications for us. Um, we do not try to advance God's kingdom with entertainment. We do not try to advance God's kingdom through trusting in money or resources or anything else. God has given us his word. He's given us the sacraments. And you know what? These are foolish things. The Apostle Paul says that. The Apostle Paul says, through the foolishness of the message preached, God is saving those who believe. I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 1. Because I think Israel's conquest of Jericho is an example of the foolishness of the cross. Notice this. Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Just as it pleased God through the foolishness of Israel marching around the walls of Jericho with ram horns, priest, and a golden box, it pleases God to save people by the message of Christ crucified for the sins of the world. 
And then when people hear about a man who is stripped naked and bleeding and mocked and beaten, a crown of thorns pressed on his head, nailed to a tree, and God says, this is how you'll be saved and this only is how you'll be saved, the world laughs, the world mocks, the world scorns it. I'll never forget, I was a young Christian of maybe a year, and at work one day, one of the guys who was most antagonistic to me, though I almost never tried to talk to anybody about anything other than work, um, picked up a new, uh, a new candlestick one day, a, a tall glass candlestick, and he said, hey, come on, Nick, let's have the Lord's Supper. And he started mocking. You see, that's how the world views what God calls the Christian to do in faith and to believe in faith. That's how the world thinks about it. If you've been so isolated in the church that you've not experienced that, let me just tell you up front, that is how the world views Christianity, as a foolish, base, stupid, empty thing to be mocked. Thing to be mocked. And, and God wants it that way. Isn't that wonderful? That the God who is infinite in power and glory, the God who has all power and all might, who can make walls of a fortified city fall down like nothing. You know, I was told that they know now there are something like, they know of like 10 billion galaxies out there. 10 billion galaxies. I can't even imagine how they would even count 10 billion And in Isaiah, God says that he calls every star by name. He calls every star by name. The God who knows and has created every star uniquely and knows everything about everything perfectly and you think how little and how small we are, how insignificant you are on this insignificant little speck called Earth in the middle of the universe And that God can make walls fall down just by having his people march around the city. That God says, I want you to embrace the foolish foolish message of the cross. I want you to embrace that I came as man and I took upon myself flesh and I was mocked and beaten and despised so that I might bring you to glory forever. Then I might bring you into the everlasting promised land. You know, I think Jericho has everything to do with your salvation. Everything. Even though you're not going to that promised land, we are heading to the new heavens and the new earth. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in chapter 2. He says, the world to come of which we speak has been made subject to the redeemed humanity. And we don't see that yet, but what we see is Jesus, who through the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, by himself tasted death for everyone. And that how do you know that you're going to enter into that and inherit the new heavens and the new earth? And how do you know that you're going to, you're going to gain the conquest of all things is because we look at the crucified Christ and we say, he has conquered. He has conquered by his death. Now, one of the interesting things and questions in the Old Testament is, how could a good and loving God tell Israel to go in and after the walls fall down to kill men, women, children, oxen, everything? And I think the answer is twofold. First, they were not innocent. Um, they were Amalekites, uh, and God told Abraham that the iniquity of the Amalekites would come to a point that it was so perverse and so wicked, God would use Israel to judge them. But secondly, and this is the most important, in order for you to gain the conquest of faith, of the heavenly inheritance, 
Jesus Christ made war on himself at Calvary. God made war on himself at the cross. God the Father poured his wrath out on his son. The walls of Satan, sin, and death came crashing down when Jesus was nailed to the tree. That's what Jericho is about. You may not be able to see that today. You may say, I don't get that. I don't see how you get there. Read your Bible. Because that's where the whole Bible's moving. The whole Bible is moving there. The inheritance that Israel prefigured was the eternal inheritance that Jesus secures. And Jesus has to be destroyed under God's wrath at the cross because of your sin and my sin, because of the enemies of God, because of the walls that stood against him. Now notice that one of the other things we see in the account here is that there was one within Jericho who was a trophy of grace in the conquest. Notice verse 31. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. It's one of the most remarkable things in the Bible. Every time, almost every time she's mentioned anywhere in the Bible, she's called Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. Even after we know that she marries one of the Israelites, probably one of the spies, Salmon, mothers Boaz, becomes the great-grandmother of David, and is in the genealogy of the Redeemer himself, Jesus Christ. Even after all that, she's still called the prostitute Rahab. And here's why. Because God wants you to know that the vilest and the filthiest and the worst sinners who believe in the gospel will be saved just as Rahab was. And that God is able, in the words of Thomas Manton, to take a dunghill and to make a sweet-smelling garden out of it. And that's what happens with Rahab, the prostitute. There is one person and her family that are trophies of God's grace. And the remarkable thing about that, the remarkable thing about that is that it flattens the playing field. That what you have to quickly realize is that it's not by what you do. It's not by anything you bring to the table. It's not by your dignity. It's not by your education. It's not by your upbringing. This is a hard pill for even a lot of people sitting in good churches to swallow. I think God puts Rahab in the Bible so that you learn by example that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that salvation is rendered. And that changes the way we look at people. It changes the way we look at people. Instead of looking down self-righteously, we see that God's grace can take the most graceless person and turn them into the most gracious person. That's the point of Rahab. Now, when you go back and you consider the story and you look at the details, it's actually quite remarkable how this happens. Here's this woman who is a notorious prostitute. She dwells there in the city wall. She's probably known most of the men of the city. The spies come to her at night. They must know that a prostitute is probably the safest person they can check things out with and they can find out the the landscape and see what they're up against. And she receives them. And she tells them, as we read earlier, she tells them, we have heard what Yahweh, you've got to listen very carefully if you get this. She says, we have heard what Yahweh did, how he brought you out of Egypt, how he parted the sea. I'll read it to you. She said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. The terror of you has fallen on us. All the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt and that you, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above 
and on earth beneath. Rahab's already a believer when the spies come. Rahab's already believed the gospel. The exodus was the gospel. God bringing his people through the Red Sea was a typical picture of God bringing his people through the judgment, out of the bondage of Satan, sin, and death, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We saw that last week. Jesus called his death and resurrection an exodus. Rahab heard about the gospel that was demonstrated typically 40 years before. Maybe she was a little girl, and she heard what God had done, and she said, our hearts melted. And the remarkable thing is, she doesn't say like the Philistines always say, if you read the Old Testament, the Philistines always say, their gods, when they speak about the Israelites, their gods are stronger than our God, or the God of the Hebrews has done this, and let's go to our God and see. And she says, no, Yahweh has done this. There is one God, and he has done this. And she says, he is God. He is God. I was thinking about that line in Captain America that gets a lot of airtime now, where he says, no, ma'am, there's only one God, and he doesn't dress like that. When he's talking about the demigods, Thor's brother. And... I thought about that. that. That's sort of an anachronistic way of saying America's, Americans in the 50s believed there was only one God. Well, let me put it this way. Hebrews in the ancient Near East and a harlot named Rahab believed there was only one God. And God so honors that that he says it's by faith she escaped and she was a trophy of grace because she believed in the one true and living God and she trusted in his redemption. She knew he was God. She knew he was the creator. She knew that he alone was God and she knew that he was the redeemer. And she looked in faith to him. And how do we know that she looked in faith? Because she hid his spies. She received his people. She showed kindness to members of the church of God. She brought them in. She said, in a sense, I belong with you. You are my people. Jericho is not my people. You are my people. And notice what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, she did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You know, I think there's so many layers here that if you had time to read and study all the sermons and the commentaries on Jericho and Rahab, you would be astonished at all the different multifaceted aspects and layers. And one of the things that one writer pointed out is that the men and the women of Jericho, they had an opportunity to believe just like Rahab did. And we know that because we're told in the account that they shut the door so that they couldn't come out and Israel couldn't come in. Now, on first sight, that would seem that what it's saying is they were afraid of Israel, so they shut the gates. But in the ancient Near East, if a, if a, a foreign people came towards you, came to your land, and you opened your gates, you were giving them a welcome of peace. You were saying, we welcome you. Come in. How can we minister to you? How can we serve you? And when they shut their gates, they were being disobedient and unbelieving, and Rahab telling the spies, we have heard through the preaching of the gospel about what God did with Egypt, with you in Egypt, we have heard. She is saying the whole city had heard, and yet only Rahab believed. I want to say this this morning. I think many lessons you can draw out of this. Um, The obvious lesson is um, when we are when we are up against the challenges of life, when we're up against the oppositions to our being Christians, when we are faced with um, enemies within, sin, and enemies without, the world, Satan, 
um, even other church members who may not be believing themselves, when we are faced with enemies, we ought to cling to Jesus Christ, no matter how foolish we think those means are, no matter how foolish it seems to march around for six days and then march around seven times on the seventh day, no matter how foolish the preaching of the cross may seem to people, it is the power of God into salvation. We are to be confident. We are to be courageous. We are to be trusting and resting in what God has done for us in Christ. We are to understand the promises. We are to have strong confidence in the word of God. I think if there's one thing, because every one of you hear me every week, and you could say, every week you tell us, look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus, every week. Yes, that's the point. The reason I tell you is because you always forget, and I always forget. That's the reason. And if we didn't forget, we wouldn't need to be told. And if we had the strongest confidence in God's word, we wouldn't sin, we wouldn't fear, we wouldn't falter, we wouldn't be afraid to tell our neighbors about Christ, to invite them to a service where they're going to hear about Christ. We wouldn't be afraid of what our coworkers are going to think about us. We wouldn't be afraid of what our children will think about us if we tell them about Christ. We won't be afraid of what the world thinks about us. We will have a peaceful, measured confidence. And you know what? And I'm including myself. That is a rare thing that most of us do not exhibit. And yet the prostitute, the prostitute, Jesus, you know, said to those that thought they were religious, prostitutes are going to go to heaven before you and you're going to go to hell and it's going to be better for Sodom than it's going to be for you. Jesus said that. It's going to be better for Sodom. That's a word that's been memorialized. It's going to be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than for religious people who are not trusting in Jesus Christ. And I want to say this. We will not only have a measured, steady, persevering confidence that God is going to do what he said. He's going to, he's going to bring us to glory. We're going to persevere through trial and persecution and difficulty. But we may find ourselves leaving all and being the only ones we know You know, Rahab is the only one in all of Jericho. All of her friends, all of her acquaintances, everybody that she knows perished. Everybody. She was alone. My dad used to say to me as a boy, and I do understand this more as I'm getting older, he said, he used to say repeatedly, Nick, if you want to follow Christ, don't look behind you because no one will be following with you. He used to say it all the time to me as a kid, and I get it now as a Christian to a degree. If you want to follow Christ, don't look behind you because no one will be following with you. Listen, you know, I love you. I do. I'm your pastor. I love you. And there is nothing more I want to see for us than we exhibit the same faith in the face of foolishness, foolish means, persecutions, challenges, even being the only ones in the group of circles in which we find ourselves, that we would persevere in faith together, collectively, that this church would be known in Richmond Hill, that people would say, that's a people of faith. That's a people who are walking together collectively by faith, anticipating the inheritance that God has for them. And I'll close with this. On Judgment Day, no one will be able to stand before God and say, 
I did it. I, I won the victory. I overcame. I was smart in military battle against Satan, sin, and death. But what we will say is the same thing that Luther said. I did nothing. He did everything. I did nothing. The word of God did everything. And all that God requires of you is that you trust. That's not just, it's not just no. It's not just intellectual assent that you would trust in Jesus Christ. And we're almost through Hebrews 11. And I'm kind of sad because there's almost a refrain. There's this refrain, by faith, by faith, by faith. And the writer's essentially saying to a sick congregation, here's your medicine, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, looking unto Jesus, the conquest of faith. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would build us up in faith. We, like the Hebrew Christians, are often a people who um, are swayed by the fear of man, by the foolishness of what it means to be a Christian and what you call us to, by the courage that it takes for us to go forward believingly, trusting your promises We pray that you would give us confidence that you are the mighty God who made the walls of Jericho fall down and that you have torn down the gates of hell and that through the death and resurrection of your son, Father, you have have overthrown all of our enemies, that you have opened the gates of paradise, that you have called us to come, that you have set us forth on a pilgrimage to enter into that everlasting kingdom. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would guide us and lead us, that you would establish us by faith that you would build us up and make us a people collectively who trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.